if you don't sometimes speak out, if you don't uh, threaten to speak out, you, you don't grab their attention. And I would rather err on the speaking out part than staying silent. Oppression is making a comeback. Repression is fashionable again. This is The Lid Is On from UN News. Zaid Rad al-Hussein's time as the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights is coming to an end. For Zaid, some of the key aspects of his mandate have involved telling hard truths, resisting attacks from governments and defending the vulnerable. At our New York studios, UN News' Matt Wells asked Zaid to reflect on his human rights career. Zaid Rad al-Hussein, thanks very much for joining us. When you compare the human rights landscape today to when you took over the UN Human Rights Office back in 2014, what are the key differences that you see? When I took over, it coincided with the terrible videos put on online by Daesh or ISIS, and which stoked a great deal of fear and horror. And we began uh, to see a sort of a deepening of the crisis in Syria. And in Iraq, I mean, of course, uh, ISIS came into the scene in early 2014. This then folded into two things. One, a great determination to embark on counterterrorism strategies, which we felt were in part excessive in certain respects. Every country has an obligation to defend its people, that's clear. And the, the work of terrorism is odious and appalling and needs to be condemned and needs to be faced. But whenever there is excessive action, whenever someone who's clearly innocent is arrested, you don't just turn one person against the state, but you turn a whole family against the state. Ten or maybe more members could end up you know, moving in the direction of uh, the extremists. And then this then folded into the migration debates and the strengthening of the demagogues and those who made hay out of what it is is that was happening in Europe for political profit. Things got steadily worse. As each year passed, we began to see a more intense pressure on on the human rights agenda. Now, you have been very outspoken and you've called out governments and individual leaders around the world who have abused human rights. Do you see that as the most important role for the UN Human Rights Chief? Yes. You see, the the Human Rights Office and the Human Rights High Commission, I mean, you're part of the UN, but you're also part of a human rights movement. And both are equally important. And as I've said on earlier occasions, I mean, the governments are more than capable of defending themselves. It's not my job to defend them. I have to defend you know, civil society, the vulnerable groups, the marginalized, the oppressed. And those are the people that we in our office need to represent. And I, I always felt that that is the, the principal task. I mean, we provide technical assistance. We collect uh, information. We go public on it. But in overall terms, the central duty for us is to defend uh, the rights of those most marginalized and those that need it. When have you come under pressure to stay silent? Well, the the interesting thing is that the pressure on this particular job um, doesn't really come very much from the government. I mean, they they all attack the office because we criticize all of them. Uh, But we also point to areas where there is improvement, and I sometimes would praise the government for doing the right thing. The real pressure on this job comes from 
the victims and those who suffer and expect a great deal from us. That's the, the pressure that I think matters most and has, is most consequential on us in terms of you know, the need to do the right thing. I mean, have there been times, therefore, when you've had to compromise a bit too much and felt that maybe you've even let rights campaigners down in some way? No, I, I, not in that sense, because I think I've been outspoken enough and I, I think I broke new ground when it came to uh, high commissioners. I can, I can tell you in almost every meeting I sit with governments, I mean, I say things that they, as a former diplomat, I know that they would never have heard it before from someone in the UN. No, I, I think there's a, the enormity of the suffering of people creates in one a, a feeling of inadequacy that no matter what I do, if I do an interview like this, I do a press conference, I put out a report, I know it won't end the practice of torture immediately. I know that the residents in an IDP camp are not going to next day be moved into something more improved after they've spent 30 years in an IDP camp. And, and that feeling is the pressure that I'm speaking about. It's a sort of feeling that no matter what I do, it's unequal to the, the colossal challenge that stands before us. And, and that's where the pressure comes from. Have there been times when you thought it best to use quiet diplomacy to work behind the scenes and... and we always try, we always try and use quiet diplomacy. We're constantly meeting with uh, governments and I send letters and I, we conduct phone calls. But on occasion, we make a determination and it's not done in a sort of sudden haphazard manner. We decide that we've tried these tracks, it hasn't worked and that I'm going to go public. Sometimes I ask my spokesperson to do it, sometimes I ask a regional office to do it and other times I'll do it myself, but it's carefully thought through. And um, there was one foreign minister, for example, I needed to speak to. We were planning to send a technical mission to, to his country, and for almost a year he avoided me. I saw him here in the GA, and he said, yes, 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 and then he just avoided. So then we got message, a message to him that I'm going to go public tomorrow. And he was on the phone right away. And the lesson learned was that if you don't sometimes speak out, if you don't uh, threaten to speak out, you, you don't grab their attention. And I would rather err on the speaking out part than staying silent. I first worked with the UN in 1994, 1995 in the former Yugoslavia, and I saw what catastrophes silence can bring. And I think from that point on, whether I, I thought of it consciously or not, I was determined not to be silent when uh, the uh, evidence before us was uh, presented. What's touched you most personally in the job? What have been those moments, the encounters with people that have meant the most to you? One of the times was uh, when I went to the uh, detention centre Ilipango in uh, El Salvador and I met with four young girls. The oldest one was 28 and then there were three others. They had been um, sentenced to 30 years in prison, and they claim these were obstetric emergencies, these were miscarriages. 30 years in prison. The state claimed that these were terminations of pregnancy. I spoke to someone who had attended at least one of the trials and said the girl was innocent before she entered the trial. And society is very forceful in demanding the stiffest penalties for these girls. And when I sat with them, I think in, in, within the space of about uh, 10 minutes, we were all weeping, we were in tears because their suffering was so extreme. One of them was telling us how her fetus was on, on the ground 
and rather than take her to hospital, they handcuffed her and took her to prison. And I thought the cruelty, the capacity for human cruelty is amazing. I saw the president after that. And I said, why, are, why is it that all these girls are poor? Every single one of them. It's as if it's only, it's only the poor that face these sorts of conditions. And it's, uh, I think in many, many parts of the world, uh, this is the point that uh, really strikes home, that time and again, the poor suffer all the consequences. And that, for me, was uh, a moment that will always remain with me, and there have been quite a few like that. I mean, is there a, a specific moment that stands out as being the most difficult or perhaps even the most consequential during your tenure? It's all been difficult. <laughs> I mean, when you're defending the rights of people and there's so, many, so much pressure exerted upon you from this deep need or desire to help them, it's all quite tough. But I take inspiration from the amazing human rights defenders journalists, uh, lawyers, activists in so many countries who do amazingly, I mean, brave, brave things to highlight the plight of others, to defend the rights of others. And I think to myself, you know, whatever I may want to complain about day, day in, day out, it's, it's nothing compared to the pressure that these people face, confront, overcome. Often they have no fear. And I think to myself, these are the real leaders. These are the people that inspire. Not many of the politicians who claim to be leaders and are weak and self-serving and are leaders in name only. The real leaders are the ones who, against all odds, will do the right thing and then often pay a price for it and be detained for it. And I think that's what keeps us fueled and that's what keeps us working on that behalf. And again, the point to be made is that, yes, we are part of the UN, but we're also part of a human rights movement. And the UN is creating order among states. With us, we look at the heart of the relationship between the governing and the governed. And so, of course, it's going to be sensitive. But for us, you know, people have their rights, the states have their obligations, their commitments, and we have to uh, defend them, defend the, <laughs> defend the people, not, not the states. Yeah. Where do you think you've made the biggest difference personally and, and, and have you made mistakes? I don't, I don't know. I mean, the, the question ought to be more properly addressed to the civil, well, civil society and the people who matter to me are the you know, civil society, victims groups, human rights defenders. And if they said Zaid has, has done a good job, I'd be very content with that. If they said Zaid you know, could have done better, I'll have to learn to live with it and accept it. But it's really for them to qualify the uh, extent to which I have you know, achieved something or whether they think that I was able to undertake my responsibilities in the right manner. As you said, uh, being High Commissioner for Human Rights is a unique job within the UN and you seem to have followed a, a fairly similar path in many respects as your predecessors, making yourself unpopular with governments. Do, do you want to see your successor sticking to that path? You know, my belief is that you have to understand this fundamental point that I mentioned earlier, that the states can defend themselves. Our job is not to defend the states, and the law is there for the protection of the weak, not <laughs> in defense of the strong. And so we look at the law, we look at the obligations of states, and our job is to defend the individual victims, the vulnerable communities, marginalized communities, oppressed communities. And I've said oppression is making a comeback. Repression is fashionable again. 
I don't believe anyone holding this position, even if they felt differently, ultimately can conduct business in a manner that departs too radically from the way that I've done it or my predecessors have done it. My belief is if you try to depart, it will be extremely unpleasant for you because you're going to hear it from the very people who are suffering. And there can be nothing that will tear at your conscience more um, if you abandon them. So my belief is that the job defines the conduct, and uh, as it should be, as it should be. Is there any other key advice you'd give? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I I would always say be in good health because it it does... uh, it is a demanding job, and uh, it is taxing, and, and so I think whoever takes this job has to be ready for it. I mean, there's some jobs in the UN system that are viewed as sinecures, as sort of a retirement posts for, for you, you know, other, you know, let's say, national officials. This is not one of them. This requires you know, complete commitment, and so my hope is whoever they announce, that person will be fully committed to this. Now, for you, where to next and how has doing this job changed your view of the world as a seasoned ex-diplomat and someone who's got so much UN experience behind them as well? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll be a journalist. I, I don't know. I, I've been away from my, uh, my family. I need to spend time with them. And then I'll look and see where, how I can, what you know, direction I'd want to take myself. But I need a rest as well. Having done, you know, having walked this tightrope, do you feel perhaps a, a little more appreciative of what the UN does, or perhaps a little less? If I were to, in the future, think of the UN, I would think of the moments in the field where I see the UN doing amazing things. And it's very difficult to tolerate abuse of the UN when I keep thinking of the heroic things that people do in the field, and whether they be humanitarian actors or humanitarian personnel, my human rights people the people who are monitoring, observing, with some threat to themselves. And I take my hat off to them. I mean, they are the UN that I will cherish and remember. And, uh, you know, we've had some interesting debates here. We've had some interesting negotiations. But it can, to the outside world, seem a script that's indecipherable, the jargon, the terminology, it seems inaccessible. And I think much more understandable is the work that UN personnel do in the field. And, and that's how I entered the UN. I entered in the field, and that's how I got to know it. And, um, and I think that's where I believe the UN has enormous impact and needs to continue to make the investment and, and do the right thing. Hi, Commissioner. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you so much. Thank you. Zaid Rad al Hussein, outgoing UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, was talking to Matt Wells from UN News. You've been listening to The Lid Is On from UN Headquarters in New York. I'm Connor Lennon.